If you would, open your Bibles to John's Gospel in the sixth chapter again this morning. As we look one final time at this particular chapter before moving on to chapter 7. I think I can say without qualification or reservation that this study of John 6 has been, for me at least personally, one of the richest and rewarding studies of any chapter in Scripture in my 20 years of pastoral ministry. It's been beautifully refreshing, encouraging, strengthening to me, uh, and I pray that it has been to you as well. And so let's look at this chapter as it closes one final time this morning with the Lord's help. We'll begin in verse 48. I'm sorry, not not the final. I know you're all thinking Brian needs to go on vacation, but I just got back. That's the problem. I'm out of I'm out of practice in this particular dialogue. It's the last time in this last section here of this fifth verbal exchange. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Thus ends the fifth verbal exchange of Jesus. So rich and full as it has been beginning in verse 41 and down through 51. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to seal it to our hearts and all the truths that it has unearthed for us. Father, we come before you again this morning and we ask that by your Spirit's help, we, your people, would be illumined, our minds enlightened to hear and to understand wonderful things from your word, which you have written so perfectly, so sufficiently, so clearly for us. Pin them to our hearts, these truths, O Lord. Pin them to our hearts. May the truth of Christ as it is revealed in these verses be ever before us. And may Christ always be our hope and our confidence. May the study of your word this morning yield rich fruit and treasure for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue here in this verbal exchange this morning... We find ourselves finally at the end of what has been and taken us some time to get through as we began in verse 41 a number of weeks ago. And as we have discovered walking through this, that it has been one of the heaviest investitures of truth so far in John's gospel. It is so densely packed, the truths that that God lays forth for us, beginning in verse 41, have been so dense and so many and so numerous and so profound and wonderful that it has taken some time to wade through them. But it's also forced us, as we have studied it, to reconcile with the exclusive nature of Jesus Christ. To To the beautiful and unique and 
God-man that he is, and he alone is. And we've been forced to reconcile the means by which his life and his message, his death and his resurrection have been appropriated to us. And what we've discovered is that it has been all of grace. All of grace. There's nothing, literally, that we could look at in our salvation and say, I did this. I did this. As Alistair Begg has so well stated, when we're asked about our belonging to Christ and asked how it is that we came to know the Lord, there is no room for the first person. It's not I, it's Him. And John chapter 6 has unearthed a myriad of treasures as that has been revealed and affirmed to us. At the same time, we've discovered from Jesus' words why those who have not believed have not believed. Why it is that they have not followed Him. And this morning as we near the end of this verbal exchange between Jesus and the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people there in Capernaum, we find that there's also a positive ultimatum. That there are those who will follow Jesus. Because the Father has drawn them and the Father has granted to them, as we saw from verse 45, a new heart upon which He has written in new covenant New promise, new fulfillment terminology, so that they will follow Jesus. And it leads us to where we are in verse 47 this morning. The ultimatum, and you'll see it in your bulletin by title, only one option. When Jesus preaches, when Jesus speaks, you have only one option. Not a series. (coughs) We must believe. Look at verse 47 this morning as we begin, truly, truly. This is that statement of authority that's often used in the prophets and Jesus in his prophetic tone saying, Of truth, of truth, from truth, from truth, I say to you, He who will believe, he who does believe, has eternal life. There's a positive ultimatum. You believe, you must believe, and in believing, I promise you this, you have eternal life. That life for which you are seeking. Why? I am that life. I am the bread of life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. And so Jesus, as he is enumerating that and offering himself to these people one final time in this discussion, in this dialogue, gives us one option. And may I say it's not just an option to these people. It's not the only exclusive option to these people. It is your only option this morning. You must believe in Jesus Christ. There is hope and there is help nowhere else outside of Jesus Christ. And there are in this text, in verses 48 through 51, several concrete truths that I want you to see this morning. 
We begin with the concrete truth of who Jesus is. Look at verse 48. I am the bread of life. I, I am the one that you need. I am the sustenance for not just life, but eternal life. Jesus here is about to give a salvo of remarks, one building upon the one before it. And he begins here. He begins where it must begin. It must begin with who Jesus is. The truth that Jesus promises is always predicated on who he is. And he says in verse 48, I am the bread of life. These people have a problem, and it has been a systemic problem. It has been a generational problem, and it is a problem that is still with us today, and that is this, that we die. It's worse than that, though. We're actually born dead. It's not just that we die spiritually because we reach a threshold of bad things, sinful things that we've done. Scripture tells us we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. That is bad news. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all inherit the wages of what we have earned and that is death because of sin. These people who so revere their ancestry. Jesus says, remember your fathers? Yeah, they died, didn't they? And you will too. Unless you come to accept this positive ultimatum, this one solution, that is who I am. I am the bread of life. He goes on in verse 50, doesn't he? And he says this, that one may eat of it and not die. And we'll get to that in a moment. But Jesus begins by laying the foundation and saying, you have to have me or there is no solution to your very real problem of sin that leads to death. We look at this and we say, well, that's for, for, for those who've been in church for any length of time. That's just that seems like common sense. But it's not. It's not to a lost world. It's not. It's not to the Jewish people. It is not a given that they will believe this. And one of the problems is that we tend to want to believe things that have no ability to provide what we need. I was taken aback again this week at my poor daughter's lack of understanding of cereal. I made the comment to her about Fruit Loops, and she looked at me and she said, What's Fruit Loops, Daddy? You know, it's those really pretty, tasty colored things mom doesn't let us eat. Foreign to her. But yet, if you were to watch the commercial for Fruit Loops, she would hear that they're packed with nutritional value and blah, 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 blah. It promises, but we now know it doesn't really deliver. There are many things that promise a, a solution to our spiritual problem, and they can't deliver. Only Jesus can deliver. And that's why he begins where he does, I am the bread of life, let's start there. I and I alone can deliver. The promise is only as good as the one who makes it. 
I am life. Jesus utters here one of these seven I am statements. And again, remember with me where we first hear that and encounter that terminology in Scripture. It's in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, isn't it? It's Moses on a mountain, on a bush that is on fire but doesn't burn. And God calls to him from the bush and he says, Moses, I am. The, the name literally means the eternal self-existent one. The source of life itself. And so as Jesus approaches these people with concrete truth, he can make the promise, he can offer himself, he can offer hope and life because he is life. The promise is good because the one who makes it is life. Life can only be offered from life and life can only be offered from eternal life in a spiritual sense. Life, eternal life, can only come from that life which is eternal. And when Jesus states to these Jewish people, I am the bread of life, they get what he's saying. They know their Old Testaments. They are steeped in the story of Moses and the burning bush and the exodus. They know. They hear familiar language. And that is what so incenses them and enrages them is that Jesus, by saying this, claims to be God. And as God, he can make the promises of God. He is not only The solution. He is the only solution. There had been confusion among the Jews as their fathers had eaten bread too. Well, yeah, and you'll notice they, throughout this discourse, they have gone back and forth about the fathers, and the fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died, and now you're saying your bread, well, how are you any different than what our fathers ate? Jesus says to them, well, they've not eaten this bread because they died. Had they eaten this bread, they would not have died. No, again, that does not mean that they would physically have lived forever here. That opportunity was lost in the garden when Adam and Eve fell into sin. But they would have lived eternally. Jesus is not only a good solution... He's not one of many solutions. He is the only solution. He is the only option. If you desire eternal life, we read the apostles in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's an exclusivity to Jesus Christ that the world hates and that these people hate. But it is an exclusivity that because of its exclusivity can offer the hope of eternal life. In order to make his point, Jesus indulges them and he makes the comparison and reveals the futility of other avenues that promise life, but in reality only offer death, even if it's delayed death. He talks about their fathers. Hey, listen, they, they, they ate, and then they died. They didn't die that day, and they didn't die the next day. 
But eventually they died. But in the goodness of God, here before you, standing before you on this day in this synagogue, in the city of Capernaum, stands one who offers life. And if you eat of him, you will not die. Now, as we said, you'll remember, you'll recall many weeks ago as we began John chapter 6, that the timing of this chapter is important. It's around the time of the Passover, a time where Jerusalem was filled with people. Everyone is flocking to Jerusalem. They are flocking to their synagogues. And as Raymond Brown, in studying this passage, citing the readings that would occur ritualistically in the synagogues at certain times of year and tracing that back to the very ones that would have been read around this time where Jesus is making his proclamation. Maybe it's on the very day that this passage had been read. But against the backdrop of understanding and knowing those things, the Jewish people hear him and they hear him at a time when Genesis two seventeen and chapter 3 and verse 3 have been read. And in these passages, God is telling Adam and Eve, there is a tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat. Do not eat. It is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Satan lies to them and says, in the moment that you eat of that tree, you'll become like God. And God says, Stay away. Fast forward into Israel's history a little further. And we come to a mountain. And the mountain is the mountain upon which God will meet with Moses. And the mountain, there is thunder and lightning and smoke enveloping the mountain. The earth quakes around the mountain because of the holiness and the majesty of God that has so inhabited that place. And God once again says to his people there, don't go close. Don't even let your animals close. In fact, build a fence around it so that nothing breaks through because if it breaks through and touches the mountain, it dies. And the Jewish mind has heard this barrier that God has placed between himself who is holy and an unholy people. And for their entire lives, there, there has been a dilemma. How do we get to God? They wouldn't deny that God is life. They know that he's life. You know, one of the sad ironies, this is just a little rabbit trail in an aside here. But one of the great tragedies that exist in the Christian world today is that a few years ago when I was studying through the book of Genesis, evangelical scholars who write the commentaries on Genesis, they debate everything. Well, did God really or didn't he really create? And was it theistic evolution or was it this? And they're just so confused. And I picked up a commentary by an unbelieving Jewish scholar who is not a believer in Jesus. But he does believe the first five books of the Old Testament quite rigidly. And he got it more right than a lot of the evangelicals got the first 
five books right. He took God at his word. These people like him take God very seriously. And they know they have a problem. And they know that they're dying. And they know that God is the source of life. And yet they've been told for the entirety of the Old Testament, stay away. Don't come near because God is holy and you are not. God is clean and you are unclean. And now stands Jesus the Christ before them and he says to them, no longer stay away. Come near and eat. Eat. Eating in the ancient Near Eastern world was one of the most intimate expressions of relationship that you could offer to someone. To share a meal with someone was a sign of great hospitality and a great acceptance. That's why the Pharisees got so angry when Jesus ate with sinners like Zacchaeus. And now no longer is God saying, stay away. God is saying, here is my son. Come near. Don't only eat with him, partake of him. And in their ears ringing with the bad news that they must stay away or die, comes Jesus with the piercing good news that they should come near and eat. Amazing contrast. Jesus then goes on and he offers another contrast in verse 49. Your fathers did eat. They ate something. They ate manna in the wilderness and they died. Be careful what you wish for. It may be entirely the wrong thing. What the fathers in the wilderness needed was the eternal life of God through the Son of God. And yet here are their descendants and they are wrestling and they will ultimately reject him. The fathers ate for eternal life and for spiritual purpose, ate entirely wrong food. They wanted it from the wrong place. They wanted it with wrong expectations. And the disastrous result is this. They died. Oh, they ate. But they died anyway. But to receive Jesus, to eat this bread, Jesus says, is to find life that is abundant and eternal and sufficient. His life speaks to the need of all humanity. It speaks to your need this morning. It speaks to my need. We need Christ. We need a bread that we eat of and never die. We need one who beckons us to come near to the life that is God and to experience eternal life in him. That's what we need. We have no other choice. This need is concrete. Verse 50. This bread which has come comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. The Jews recognized again their need. But their need was an ever-changing need rooted in the changing circumstances of subjective reality. You remember where they started following Jesus? They follow him up to the north side of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus feeds them and they're thinking, this is great. Didn't cost us anything. 
we're just going to follow this guy around for the rest of his life or our life, whichever ends first, and we're just going to eat all the free meal we can get. We get hungry, we punch the button, food comes out. Moms, you know a little bit how that feels. That's how your children think you are. Your kitchen works 24 hours a day, right? Seven days a week. All we got to do is go to mom. She'll cook us something. These Jews, hey, all we got to do is go to Jesus. He'll fill our bellies. Theirs was a recurrent need based on the metabolic process of their bodies. And when they wanted something, they wanted it. And they expected Jesus to fill their bellies. They thought that was their greatest need, and Jesus is pointing out to them, and they're having trouble seeing it. That is not your greatest need. Your greatest need is eternal life. Your fathers got full on manna every single day, and they still died. What you need is something lasting, something different. And so he says in verse 50, this is the bread, me, which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. What they have failed to recognize at this point is that there is a concrete need that can only be met through who Jesus is and what Jesus is actually offering them. I want you to notice that Jesus makes to them an available provision. This bread is available to them. Jesus is not withholding it from them. Jesus offers it freely. Look, the bread is here. To to, to believe is open to you. In fact, I command you to believe. It's an available provision. Some might have interpreted verse 44 that no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. Well, that's not fair. And there, there are people who, who, you know, they would come to Jesus, but, but it's not fair because the Father didn't draw them, and that's why they wouldn't come. Only partially true. Jesus has made himself available to all. And yet they continue in unbelief. He is an available provision for them. Jesus doesn't offer some ethereal concept or some unattainable solution to their need. He doesn't say, hey, listen, once you attain to a certain status of righteousness, then you come back and talk to me. There were no prerequisites in salvation. Jesus says, here I am. I am available. To those who will believe, he's come down. But he's come down only to be available for a period of time. Should you die, or Christ return in judgment, this offer no longer stands. Jesus is available, but he is available now. He's not available at all times. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, therefore do not harden your heart as the fathers did in the wilderness. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus has a sense of urgency in his preaching here. He's not only available, but he is available now. 
Which begs the question for each life here this morning that we must ask, what are we doing with the eternal provision of God today? Are we putting off coming to Christ? Are we putting off believing for another day? No, today is the day of salvation. Well, you know, I believed in the past, but I'm not sure I believe today. Maybe I'll believe again. No, today is the day of belief in Christ. Today is the day of salvation. There is an urgency to Jesus' message. He is available, but he is only available now. He has come down out of heaven for a mission and a purpose. One writer says this is the final offering of the bread to these people. Now listen, if something's final, there's also something to say not only about its exclusivity, not only about its time-related matters, but there's also something to be said about its sufficiency. This is not only the true bread, this is the true bread out of heaven, and there will not be a need for more bread. Why? This bread is enough. This bread is enough. He's come down one time out of heaven. There will not be another son of God who comes. There will not be a need for another savior. God has provided what is fully sufficient right here, right now, in Jesus Christ. And nothing else is needed. It's so frustrating, isn't it, when we purchase something and we think we've purchased an all-in-one kit of some sort and then you find out wait a minute they didn't include the screws you know, the, the worst now men you'll understand this you go to Lowe's or you go to Home Depot and you buy a power tool and you're so excited you think you get a good deal until you open it up and realize oh that didn't include the $200 battery right it's not all in one but Jesus is It's the last one that will ever be needed. He is sufficient and full in all that he is. God never will need to offer more than he's offered in his son. The fathers had to have more bread. Jesus says, not with me, it's one time. In fact, the verb came down out of heaven. That is a punctiliar verb. Place and time, singular action, it's done. God's final provision. Why? Because as the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is better. He's the superior one. He leaves nothing undone. It is once and for all. Because of who he is. Because of who he is. If you're like me and you grew up in Baptist churches and still consider yourself Baptist by conviction, you'll be familiar with the saying, well, once saved, always saved. That can be twisted and it has been, but it is true at face value. That is true. But we need to step back and we need to ask the question, why is it that once I'm saved, I'm always saved? 
If I'm truly born again, and if I'm truly saved, what makes me always saved? And the answer is in the person of Jesus Christ. Because he came once for all. He died once for all. He's been raised once for all. He sits and he rules and he reigns once for all. He mediates between us and the Father forever. I'm saved forever because Jesus is forever. And that's what he's trying to communicate to these people. Hebrews 10.10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's done. It is done in Christ. Some have looked at this because of its language of bread and of eating as referring to the ordinance of the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. But that is to see it wrongly. Because communion, the Lord's Supper, is something we are to do on a constant basis until Jesus comes, right? Do this as often as you eat or drink until I come, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11. But Jesus says what I'm speaking of here is a one-time act. Now, certainly communion points back to that, but this is not that. Because this is one time for all. Just a little aside here. Everywhere else in the New Testament that we read of communion or the Lord's Supper, we read Jesus speaking not of his flesh, but of his body. Here Jesus uses a completely different word. He uses the word flesh. I give my flesh. It's consistent with speaking of his humanity, of his coming from heaven. John 1.14 And the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we saw his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, in verse 51 It is his flesh that he's given. It is his life that he gives in place of our life. And so there's a concrete need that must be met. A concrete need of sin and of redemption from sin. And of supplying something for that sin that only Christ can supply. And again, verse 51 Jesus goes back to the concrete promise. And he begins with who he is. I am. You just can't get away from stating that over and over. Have you noticed that in chapter 6? Over and over and over and over. So, man, Brian gets so redundant sometimes in his sermons. Well, I only want to be as redundant as Scripture is. Scripture is incredibly redundant on this point. It all hinges on the person of Christ. I am. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, my life. Again, the promise is true. The promise is good because the one making the promise is eternal 
life in and of himself. God could not have sent down an angel. He couldn't have sent down and does not send down saints. He sent once and for all his son from the place of authority, from the place of the father himself. And the father has taught us all by the one whom he sent. But notice again, Jesus in his kindness toward these hard-hearted people. In his free offer of the gospel. If anyone will eat. If anyone eats. This is the, the other side of that coin that Charles Spurgeon talked about. That there's the, on one side the sovereignty of God and the drawing of men. The, the, the choosing and the drawing of men so that they will come. And on the other side of the coin is the human responsibility that whosoever believes will be saved. Both are true. And Jesus here gives the other side of that coin from verse 44. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. You know what the problem is? Lost men, apart from a work of God in their heart, don't want to eat this bread. They want the bread that their fathers had. They want something different. They want it on their terms. They want something they can understand, that they can participate in. And Jesus says, but if anyone does believe and eats of this bread, he will live forever. It's the last half of verse 44. I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus will not reject any that come to him. To eat in faith. There's a free offer of the gospel. To all who will believe. And let's face it. We don't know who the father is drawing. Do we? Do you know? I certainly don't. Spurgeon again said that in his day. In the 1800's in London. He said you know if I knew who those people were. That verse 44 speaks about. If God had painted his words where if God had painted a yellow stripe down their backs. I would go around London lifting up everyone's shirt to look for the yellow stripe. And I would preach the gospel to them because I would know for a certainty they would be saved. They would believe once they heard. But his conclusion was God didn't do that. And I don't know. So I preach to everyone. And so does Jesus. If anyone will eat of this bread, he will live forever. It's offered to all. It's compelling. You need to come. And you need to come right now. Because this bread has only come down from heaven. And it is available. It is available now. But it is not available forever. And there is an exclusivity to it. Grab hold of the raft while you may. A raft without discrimination. Anyone for the world. John Jews of the world simply is meant to convey an outside of the Jewish context understanding. 
they're so close-minded. The Jews are kind of like, we are the world. And none of you outside of us matters. And Jesus says, whoa, hold your horses. I'm come for the world. Not just the Jews, not just the Greeks, not just the Romans, not just the Parthenians or the Medes or the Persians. I came for the world. I am the only Savior for the world, and anyone in the world who will come to me and eat of me, that is to believe upon me, will live forever. Notice what he says in closing. And the bread also which I will give, that which they are believing, that which they are receiving from me is this, my life, my flesh. See, brothers and sisters, friends, Jesus came vicariously. We often think, and rightly so, and we often sing, Jesus died in my place. And he did. If you believe in him, he died in your place. But before Jesus died in your place, Jesus lived in your place. He perfectly kept the law for you where God had commanded you to do it and you didn't. Jesus did. His active obedience to his Father's will, to the law of God, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. So that when he did go to the cross in our place, dying in our place who believe, he had no sin of his own to pay for and therefore could pay instead for ours. His life is vicarious in that from beginning to end, it was in our place, both in life and in death. Christ did for us. It's sacrificial. He laid down his life. He gave his life up. And that's the context. I will give it up. I will give my life. Here's just a little precursor to what's coming later. No man takes my life. I lay it down. These Jewish people, no doubt, on the days they are crying out, thinking they will kill Jesus. Jesus said, don't you remember? You're not going to take my life. I'm going to give my life. It's a difference. A big difference. A difference that matters. Jesus lived vicariously. Jesus lived and died sacrificially. Hey, listen, the fathers ate manna in the wilderness and it did you no good. (laughs) You ate last night at the feeding of the 5,000 and here we are lunchtime the next day and it's done you no good. But me, you eat of me and you will live forever. Jesus doesn't offer other substitutes. He is the substitute. I came and I give my life for the world and it is my flesh, my very being.
What's our response to be? Believe. Do you believe this? Quoted it yesterday from John eleven twenty six. Jesus has just told Lazarus' sisters and his disciples and their friends, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And then he turns around in verse 26 and he says, Do you believe these things? And that's the question for us this morning as we reach the end of this dialogue. Do you believe this? Do you believe Jesus? There's no other way to apply Jesus, and we'll talk about this more next week, but there is no other way to apply Jesus' life and death and work to us other than faith. We don't believe, as the Roman Catholics do, that you can eat him in the physical bread and wine of communion. We don't believe that. We don't believe that you can appropriate Jesus by living like Jesus, by some moral reflection of Jesus. Jesus is applied to our life in one way, belief on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Eat by faith the bread of life. And because he never dies, you never die. We were all raised and probably heard this more than once. When we wanted to eat junk, our parents would look at us and say, you are what you... Jesus says, spiritually, you are what you eat. You partake of me, I am everlasting life. That everlasting life then becomes part of who you are. And you too live forever. You eat what your fathers ate in the wilderness. You get what your fathers got. They became what they ate. Death. In fact, do you remember what happened to manna when you gathered too much and tried to hoard it? It had the stench of what? Death and decay. There you go. You want eternal life? Eat me by believing in me. One thing and one thing only required. One choice and one choice only is available to us. You either believe or you die. Do you believe these things? Do you believe these things? Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning as we close our time together. If you believe... That Jesus is who he says he is. That he is the son of God who has come down from heaven. If you believe that Jesus lived in your place without sin. Fulfilling all of God's good and righteous commandments that you couldn't and haven't. So that he could die in your place and absorb your punishment on the cross that you earned, that you deserved. Do you believe that Jesus not only died for you, but that he was raised on the third day for your life? Dying for your sins, being raised for your life, and that that life now, if you believe those things about him, you shall be saved. 
If you don't yet believe, believe today. I don't know. I've, I've, I've always had a hard time. I want to believe. Believe. Call upon the name of the Lord. Lord, I believe these things are true of you. Apply them to me. Make them true for me. And he promises all who call upon him will be saved. Having believed these things, eat that bread and never die. Father, only you know what is true in each mind and each heart here, each life here this morning. You know those who are yours. Father, you know those who have believed. You know those who have yet to believe, those who need to believe. And Father, we pray this morning you would draw them. Open their eyes, convince them of the truth of who Jesus is. Grant to them faith to believe, understanding of what has been revealed. We, we may not know everything, but we know what we need to know. And it's enough. Cause them to believe who have not yet believed. That they might live forever. And in all things, Father, cause us to honor the Lord Jesus Christ with our worship. There really is no return that we could make for such a great salvation than our worship, our love, our affection for Jesus, our belief, our trusting. What else do we have to offer? You have accomplished it all on our behalf for us. And so you deserve all the credit and the glory for it. To cause us to be quick to give that to you which belongs to you. We pray and ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.